Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to We Are History. I'm John O'Farrell. And I'm Angela Barnes. Um, I feel like I should put a bit of a disclaimer in this one, John, because I don't know if you can hear from oh, my yeah. voice. But A, I'm recording this at home while you're in the studio. Yeah. Um, and B, I've got the COVID, John, and it's rubbish. So I might sound a bit rubbish. COVID? I've not heard of that. Have you not? It's this newfangled <laughs> thing. You should try it. Everyone's doing it. Oh, no. Poor Angela. She's plowing on like a proper trooper, uh, even though she is down with the lurgy and has uh, had a lot on her plate, but with touring and everything, she's plowing on. We're plowing on. So um, apologies for this voice. I sound like a teenage boy right now. But <laughs> oh, I'm going to do my podcast. Oh, hello. <laughs> we, we've worked out that when I laugh, I cough, but you know, luckily I'm doing a podcast with John O'Farrell, so we should be all right. Oh, oh she cuts me to the slam. quick mic drop. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, uh, yes, Angela's chosen today's topic. We want everyone to subscribe. Remember to subscribe, everyone, and so it downloads automatically into your inboxes because Angela's worked hard on this one against all the odds. Uh, tell us what you're talking about today, Angela. Well, it's a topic I've wanted to do for a while, ever since I read a book called Outskirts by, right. I'm going to say, friend of the podcast, John Grindrod, because um, we've mentioned him a few times. He wrote a book called Concretopia, which I love and I bang on about all the time. Oh, yeah. um, but this book, Outskirts, it's sort of part memoir because he grew up in uh, New Addington, which is um, a sort of outskirt of Croydon. And <laughs> okay. uh, and it's also a memoir of the uh, the Greenbelt. So he lived right on the edge of the Greenbelt. And so it's sort of what the Greenbelt is, but also the book is about what it was like growing up on the edge. Of it. Right. Okay. Um, now, look, I know, I don't know if this is something that comes to everyone with age, John, but I've started to find town planning quite interesting. I don't know. Is that a sign that I'm getting on a bit? Yeah, no, rock and roll. I mean, that was always my dream to read books about when I was growing up, you know, and interested in punk rock and everything. I was like, one day I want to do a podcast about town planning. That was my dream. <laughs> I mean, actually, I've always well, been, I've always been interested in uh, local politics, I suppose, and the way yeah. that our environment really affects our behaviour, uh, which it clearly Absolutely. does. Yeah. yeah, and it's interesting because as a concept, town planning is sort of something that didn't used to exist. Towns just sort of grew up wherever they were needed, be that on rivers, then on roads or, or whatever, in, in sort of areas of concentrated population, I suppose. But the idea of planning a town is a concept that's changed over the decades. It depends on who's in government. But the concept is sort of the same yeah. when it comes to this thing that we know as the green belt and the green belt is just one of those ideas isn't it yeah. it's something that always been there as long as i've been alive this idea of green belt being sacred and and something we all think that we know and understand right yeah well i grew up in maidenhead so you know that's a sort of a wonderful example of we need more dual carriageways and more multi-story <laughs> car parks that's what we need so they sort of exactly. ripped the center out of that town as i was growing up and you sort of as it happened you were thinking I, I don't think this is better i think this is worse you know uh, so it's important stuff and it really does yeah. influence the way we live together as a society and you see it with with pedestrianized high streets and you know places to eat and drink outside it's a, and it's one of those things i think the green belt is something everyone goes oh i know what that is yeah uh, well, like protected green spaces that you can't build shopping centres on. Is that right? 
Well, essentially, yes, but there's sort of more to it than that. And like, I think that's what we often do with this podcast is go, oh, I know all about that. And then go, oh, actually, yeah, no, yeah. I didn't know all about that. So <laughs> let's have a look at how they came about, I guess. So town planners are always coming up with concepts to improve the lives of citizens, apparently, be it garden cities. Um, we'll come on to those in a okay. bit. And then you've got the 15-minute cities that have been in the news recently and talked about at a Tory party conference. Yeah, so the way that we plan and arrange our towns, I think is also a really good insight into our relationship with nature and the surrounding countryside. Because I don't know about you, John, I, I, I find it interesting, the whole concept of countryside. I didn't come from what I call a a nature walk sort of family. I don't feel very connected to nature and I find that quite sad that I can't recognise trees or birds or, you know, my family, we spent our weekends sort of in the countryside, but at Brown's Hatch that was just built to ruin the countryside. <laughs> oh, oh, what's that lovely sound? Oh, I think it's an F1 car. Yes. The Formula Ford 1600 in the wild. No, I did grow up sort of on the edge of the countryside um, and did grow up sort of like spotting, you know, uh, green finches. I told my daughter when she was about eight that I was really into bird spotting when I was a kid. And she burst out laughing when you must have been so unpopular. <laughs> it's like, oh, oh, thanks, Lily. Actually, we were all in the young ornithologists in Maidenhead. I think yeah. you're fine. It's where the hot totty went, it's right? It's pretty cool, man. So, yeah, but yeah. of course, the countryside is a catch-all term for anything that isn't town, really, isn't it? So it encompass, encompasses yeah. farmland, parks, forest, hooray, golf courses, boo, <laughs> any space that isn't built up, really. <laughs> yeah. And also, I just find the idea of planning a town quite fascinating. I don't know if it's because I grew up playing Sim City or what, but because from where I stand, everything just feels like random chaos. And I've always lived in towns, but I'd rarely think about how they're arranged uh, or, or rarely has it sort of occurred to me that anybody's thought that much about how they're arranged. And then you get on a plane and you sort of look yeah. down and particularly, you know, I, when oh, I fly from crazy. Gatwick, which is 20 minutes down the road from me, and I sort of look down and go, where did all this green come from? I was down there a minute ago and it was all concrete and chaos, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I think we sort of forget sometimes when we live in towns, you know, how much green there is and what, it is and what it's used for and yeah and how important it is that it's there so let's get going where are we going back to it in this history of the green belt Angie? are we talking about the green space around stonehenge are we going back earlier than that well <laughs> apparently john i can't say i've read it but apparently in the book of numbers in the old testament god advised Moses to found new cities and surround them with an agricultural belt. <laughs> God, the original town planning department. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So it get the idea of sort of surrounding your urban centres with countryside or agriculture is not a new one. Um, but if we're going to look at modern Britain's relationship with the town and countryside, I think we should start by going back to 1580. Oh, that's modern Britain. 1580, okay. yeah, yeah. Modern Britain, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For me, John, you know, that is modern Brit. Um, when Elizabeth I, she made a proclamation in which she requested something she called a cordon sanitaire, because they all spoke French in them oh, days, we... didn't they? Because <laughs> they was posh. Yeah. And um, the idea of this was to prevent any new house or tenement being built within three miles of any of the gates of the city of London. Because oh. obviously this is pre-industrialization, but everything's a bit overcrowded and smelly and gross, as right. we know in those, you know, we've seen those pictures of the overlapping houses. We know what happened to the Great Fire of London. Yeah. Everyone was living on top of each other. And also when you had a concentrated population in these urban places, how are you feeding them if there's no agricultural land and things like that? You don't have refrigeration. You don't have all the modern yeah, ways yeah. of storing food that we have now. So it's a problem. And this legislation was important because it was the start, really, of London's urban sprawl, I suppose, that, that period. Well, yeah, because London began its sprawl, if you like, before a lot of other major European cities did. And that's because at that time... The other, the sort of mainland European cities were much more susceptible to invasion. Yeah. You know, it was at a time when it was always in flux. And so this meant that they were always tightly contained within these defensive city walls. So the cities didn't grow. The populations within them did. Yeah. So um, they were contained in a way that London wasn't. So 
because London didn't have these defensive city walls that were so important, it was much easier for it as a city to start growing outwards. Yeah. So by the 17th and 18th centuries, we start to see these suburbs emerging and the establishment of what they called the great estates of London. So into what's now your Belgravias and Bloomsbury and Mayfair and places like that. Yeah. Insane to think of those places as suburbs, isn't it? As Mayfair, as as, as the outskirts, and where they went sort of riding and hunting in Soho. Soho's well, so called yeah. because it's a hunting area. But as towns grow, our relationship with the countryside changes, of course. And um, here was this uh, Renaissance idea of Arcadia, whereby rural inhabitants lead a kind of simple and unsophisticated life, but they're happy. That's the idea. Yeah, that was the Renaissance idea, but it's changing. I I mean, I do think some London people still see it that way. I mean, I listen to the Archers, John, so I know it's bollocks. But (laughs) But then in the 18th and early 19th century, the Romantic movement really portrayed the English countryside as a sort of Eden, didn't it? A natural habitat for humankind to live at one with nature. Yeah, which is fine if you're, you know, rich yeah. and that's the way that you view the countryside and you're not up to your knees in, you know, animal muck or whatever. Yeah. But there was this sort of romantic ideals of the countryside and how humanity should live in in some sort of harmony with it or, you know, came to the front. But at the same time, of course, the idea of enclosure was becoming widespread. Yes. So this was essentially... The privatisation of previously common land. Yes, yes. I've just got this to remind me then of an Australian friend of mine who's living in Cheltenham now. And we, how do you find it? She goes, it's so muddy. She goes, the countryside is so <laughs> muddy. And it's like, yeah, that is the sort of thing about it. She's really yeah, fed up with it. We have rain here. <laughs> we have rain in England, not Australia. So anyway, you know, common yeah. land. Um, that meant it was under the control of the Lord of the Manor, but that people could use it for growing food, grazing animals, fishing, etc. And provision of it was uh, first enshrined in a law in the Magna Carta in 1215. Um, we've never done an episode on that. I think we started started revising one of Magna Carta and decided it was too complicated. We're boring. It was boring. <laughs> we'll have another go maybe one day. But common land <laughs> traditionally sustained the poorest people in rural communities who owned no land of their own. That's right. But then this enclosure of the land started happening, and at first sort of surreptitiously since the 17th century, really, where um, these lords of the manor and landowners would start to deny commoners access to parts of their land unless they could pay rents on it as tenants. And then eventually a formal enclosure act was passed in 1773, which denied many of the poorest people a means to grow food for their families. Yeah. And I mean, just to uh, go back a little bit on that, it was quite often people were kicked off the land and sheep were put on them, weren't they? And so um, yeah. more money, people could, they could make more money out of sheep than they could out of humans, uh, which is a bit harsh. Yeah. So between 1604 and 1914, uh, 5,200 enclosure acts were passed and 6.8 million acres of common or so-called wasteland was removed from public access and use. It's harsh. Yeah, I mean, the, the, they called it wasteland, but that just meant common land that common people would yeah. use. So it was a waste yeah. in terms of they weren't making money from it, but it wasn't waste in terms of people's survival. Mm-hmm. And there's that famous verse about it from the 18th century. Um, it says, they hang the man and flog the woman who steals the goose from off the common, yet the greater villain loose that steals the common from the goose. Quite right. Was ever it. thus, John. It is. It's like, yeah. I mean, it's like mm-hmm. taking from the poor and making more money for the rich. Yeah, couldn't happen today, John. Couldn't it could not happen today. today. The idea that would be such exploitative policies. I think that phrase from our monks is going to surface a fair it's, few times. We've got to put it in every episode. It's compulsory. It's contractual. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. So, so enclosure, along with industrialization, is pushing people from the countryside into the towns. Living conditions get increasingly overcrowded and unsanitary for the urban poor, not only in London, but in newer industrialized cities as well. Is that right? Yeah, it was often worse in those cities, really, because they lacked the governance that London had to do anything about it. So Manchester obviously became very quickly this industrial powerhouse, but it wasn't even incorporated into an administrative district until 1838. And so these people were living in these poor conditions with no means of any local government to do anything about it, even if they wanted to. Right. And by 1842 in Manchester, there was a mortality rate of 57% in children under five and a life expectancy of just 37, which is shocking, isn't it? It is shocking, yeah. Really shocking. Um, And then a cholera outbreak in 1853 
Yeah, this is in London. Do listen to our episode on the Great Stink. We talk all about the cholera outbreak and Jon Snow who discovered its source. Yes, and then that starts to initiate the movement for urban reform in these overcrowded cities, particularly in London, because uh, that's where all the wealthy reformers mostly lived. Yeah, exactly. Like London was the city, I suppose, where mostly wealthy people and the poor were in closer quarters. And so the wealthy people noticed <laughs> the yes, poor. Yes, yes. And you had your John Ruskins and Charles Booths and Charles Dickens and all these people highlighting what was going on. So there, there were these people that had a bit of clout are starting to see that something needs to be done about the conditions of the urban poor in London, particularly. And one of them, Octavia Hill, while campaigning yep. for better housing, also recognised the importance of open spaces that are accessible to urban populations. She speaks of the life-enhancing virtues of pure earth, clean air and blue sky. Yeah, there speaks a woman who doesn't get hay fever. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was thinking. But I love the countryside, but it doesn't love me. <laughs> it's uh, pretty progressive stuff, all this. Uh, while poets banged yeah. on about the countryside and it's important to humanity, um, here's a well-to-do woman making the point that it's important for all humanity. She says, I think we want four things, places to sit in, places to play in, places to stroll in, and places to spend a day in. I mean, she clearly didn't spend yeah. 12 hours a day down a coal mine, but, you know, good luck to her. Well, no, quite. But, I mean, you know, these people, it depends how you look at them. They were reformers and they did make change happen, but also they were Victorians, so they were yeah. paternalistic in their nature. Yeah. They weren't encouraging people, you know, it, giving people the means to help themselves. It was very, what can we do for these poor people? Yeah. Um, you know, and that's just how it was then. Octavia Hill, she was a founder member of both the Commons Preservation Society and later the National Trust as well, who became obviously one of the Britain's biggest landowners and preserved the land for people to, to be able to benefit from it to a certain extent. But in 1866, the Commons Preservation Society um, really came into its own because they took their first direct action. And this was in Berkhamstead, John, right. um, when a Lord Brownlow of Ashridge House in Berkhamstead tried to enclose Berkhamstead Common and they put up these five foot steel fences all around it. But the Commons Preservation Society decided, no, we need to do something about this. That is for the commoners to graze their animals on or whatever. We're not having it. And so what they did, they recruited a load of bigger boys from the East End about hundred of them. Wow! <laughs> sent them up there, and they tore all the fences down. And that was their first bit of direct action against this enclosure of a common. And the Preservation Society, the Commons Preservation Society, later became. They're still around. They're now called Open Spaces. I think they're called now. They were responsible for preserving Hampstead Heath and Wimbledon Common and loads of the big bits of common land in and around London, you know. Wow, that's amazing. We take those for granted. We forget there would have been battles over them and they could have easily all been built on. So thank you. Absolutely. Preservation and, societies. Yeah. And the ideals of social justice were really behind these movements. It was all about the urban dwellers of the of the city getting access to the benefits of the countryside. It was very much about the you know the good of those people who were living in these awful conditions. Yeah, and um, and this is where the early ideas for the green belt begins to come in. Am I right? It is, yeah. And I think John, that's a pretty good place to take our first break because I know that you want to make some calls and find out how easy it would be for you to enclose Clapham Common. Is that right? <laughs> how dare you? <laughs> I can see you now, as Lord of the Manor. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, we have this big thing on Clapham Common that they put these big events on them every summer where they uh, put massive fences up and but it's and they're paid events for concerts and stuff like that. And there's a lot of tension. And people are saying, it's like the enclosures. And I go, it's not really like the enclosures because you, really like you, you haven't lost your livelihood. But there's a, there's a battle between profit and free use, you know. But those people will, you know, go to festivals in someone else's backyard, I'm sure. There's a little bit of nimbyism comes into all of this to absolutely, a certain extent, absolutely. I guess. Anyway, here's our first break. Uh, we'll see you after this. Hello, welcome back to We Are History, where Angela has COVID so bad, she had three lines on her test. I've never heard of that before. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, but she's blowing on. Notes. She's blowing on. Uh, I can hear it in your voice, Angela. I think it's a great credit to you that you don't cancel the podcast oh. and you keep going. But you're here to tell us about the Green Belt 
And we're at the turn of the century now. We are. But which one, John? I always think to me, it's interesting because to me, turn of the century means 19th to 20th. But I keep forgetting there's been another turn of the century since then. That, that is a good point. 19th to 20th. And we're talking about the social reform. <laughs> it's only been 23 years to get used to it. It's pathetic, really, isn't it? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're talking about 19th to 20th. And we're talking about the great social reformers that are planting the first seeds for a green belt initiative. Lovely imagery there, Angela. I love that. Yeah, planting so the first planting seeds. seeds, green. Yeah, green. I can do countryside. It's <laughs> fine. So one of the earliest suggestions for a green belt came from Lord Meath. And he proposed uh, a series of what he called broad sylvan avenues to connect open spaces in London. And then in 1901, the MP William Bull had been inspired by planners in America. And he came up with this proposal for a belt of parkland half a mile wide around the edge of London that he called a green girdle. I don't like green girdle, Angela. Sounds like an environmentally friendly support garment. Yeah, it's not it's not a nice term, is it? Girdle. Just makes you think my nan wore girdles. Anyway. Remember um, the advert? Do you remember the advert? Oh, I forgot my 24-hour girdle. Oh, I have it on. So comfortable, you won't know you're wearing it. (laughs) I don't remember that, John. 24-hour girdle, that must have minged. Oh, God, yeah. (laughs) Anyway. Anyway. Well, yes, let's cleanse our brains of that image. Um, I want to talk about an old friend of the podcast, um, John. We've talked about him before, I think, in our episode, Rise and fall of the council house oh yeah um and that is ebenezer howard i don't know if you remember him he was the founder of the garden city movement i said we'd come back to that oh yeah and he published a book um in 1901 called Garden Cities of Tomorrow. Right. And he'd been inspired by ideas in other places, particularly the Ringstrasse in Vienna, which was a sort of park stroke green boulevard that encircled the city using land that had become available when the old city walls were demolished in 1857. And yeah. that was the basis for his big ideas. Yeah, and how it suggested that these new cities should have a clear physical division between industrial areas and the residential districts His work was different to those social reformers trying to alleviate the conditions of the poor within the existing cities. His his plan was more to move them out of these industrial cities into new cities, wasn't it? Yeah. So it was sort of a utopian experiment that he illustrated with something he called his three magnets diagram, which if you Google it, you can see it's quite pretty. And it showed how a population would be attracted to a city that offered aspects of both town and country life. So you'd get the opportunity, amusement and high wages of the town alongside the beauty, fresh air and low rents of the country. That was his idea. Yeah, Yeah, like that's going to happen. In in Howard's vision, the surrounding countryside would be functional, containing allotments and farms and light industry, with this sort of soft transition between town and country. Yeah, and the movement had the support of loads of these reformers at the time. It was a, you know, a real movement and it resulted in a series of these little experimental suburbs in London to begin with to see if it was so that's where you get Hampstead Garden suburb, Ealing Garden suburb. And they're places where a lot of these reformers ended up living in their little utopian experiments. Yeah, and Howard's ultimate concept was a, a the city cluster, a large central garden city surrounded by a circle of smaller garden cities, which with each separated by a sort of green belt of its own. Yeah. So by 1904, they'd found their site for their first garden city. And with these designers, Barry Parker and Raymond Unwin, they devised and built what we now know as Letchworth Garden City. Right. Um, and then in 1909, they bought the, this garden city corporation, as it was then, they bought a thousand acres of land south of the city and they kept it as a sort of market garden for the inhabitants of the city. So in effect, that was Britain's first bit of greenbelt planning. Right. And Ebenezer Howard yeah. had planned for six garden cities, hadn't he? Built linked by yeah. rail and road. But sadly he died uh, before they finished the second one, Welland Garden City. Am I right? That's right, yeah. And these other garden cities were never realised because, as always, the you know these great ideas, people die, move on. Other people have ideas, they run out of money. So it was never this great utopian experiment was obviously never 
put to the test. Um, but his ideas were the basis of the New Towns movement that would come later. And we talked a lot about that in our Rise and Fall of the Council House episode. Still, even today, his sort of visions are there in town planning concepts. Yeah, so by this time, the need for housing is getting greater, isn't it? Clearances of the old Victorian slums meant that there was a lot of displaced poor people needing homes. And then comes World War One, And the eventual yeah. Prime Minister, David Lloyd George, uh, at the end of the war, promised uh, returning soldiers that they would have homes fit for heroes and that these homes needed to be built. That's right. So it, we're in this sort of interwar period. And at this time, when there was a great need for housing... There were no real planning rules as we know them today. It was a bit of a laissez-faire attitude to development. So if you owned land, you could sell it to developers and nobody was really checking on what was being done with it. So between 1919 and 1939, this interwar period, over 860,000 homes were built in rural areas. But of those... 700,000 were private projects. So they were intended not for locals, not for these urban dwellers, but for rich middle-class incomers. Yeah. Well, this is exactly... Sorry to get on my high horse, but this is exactly where we are now. Because this is where we are now that they're leaving it to the private sector to provide housing. And so all these uh, expensive luxury flats are are going up and some of them are bought by... as Some of them are... Where I live in Lambeth, they're traded like stocks and shares uh, and Mm. gold and bullion um, on the open international markets and kept empty because they are a commodity not a place for people to live. Um, so in the in the uh, interwar period, my grandfather was building these houses. That was what he did. And um, there's even a road in Essex called Joy Don Road, named after my mum Joy and my uncle Don. Oh, that's so lovely. I know, but it's like they were these sort of mock Tudor suburban houses where, where you know, meanwhile, there was a massive need for housing for poor people. And you cannot leave a fundamental human right, like homes, a roof over your head, to the to the free market. So anyway, that's my particular bugbear about housing at the moment and in the 30s. Yeah. And we do, we do sort of come on to that at the end. Yeah. But meanwhile, sort of. in 1935, the London County yeah. Council announced its intention to formally create a green belt. It had been pushed for by leader of the London County Council, Labour MP for Lambeth, Herbert Morrison. That's right. He, Herbert Morrison had been a conscientious objector in World War One, So he spent the war working in a market garden in Letchworth Garden City. So he knew all about these garden city ideas. And it was him who really pushed to formalise this idea of a green belt rather than it just be something, you know, that may happen ad hoc. Yes. Yes. And so they recruited Raymond Unwin, who'd been one of the designers that worked on Letchworth and other garden city projects to sort of mastermind this plan, which would eventually be based on the reports that he made. Yes. Well, the stated purpose of the Green Belt Act was to provide a reserve supply of open spaces, not necessarily continuous, but as readily accessible from the completely urbanised area of London as possible. So this is an important point, which you will see later how this changes, because the first Green Belt was seen as an integral part of London, providing space for the enjoyment of the population, rather than just as a barrier to this growth and sprawl that was happening, although that was another effect of it and an important effect of it. The Act itself would stop people selling or building on this green belt designated land without permission from the Secretary of State. But its its purpose was for access to the countryside for urban dwellers. Yeah. And the way the act worked was that it enabled public bodies to take ownership of green belt land. It was an expensive way to do it. And local authorities would have to borrow money to acquire the green belt land in order to preserve it. However, Many landowners saw the benefits of preserving the heritage of the countryside and ultimately felt their estates would benefit from rural settings being preserved. Yeah, so they tended not to whack up the prices and make it impossible. You know, I think quite a lot of agreements were struck between these county councils and and the landowners. Not everybody, though, John, was on board with this idea of letting poor urban dwellers have access to their precious countryside. Can you imagine, John? I find that hard to believe, Angela. Um, One of those people, I thought I'd mention him because in John Grindrod's book, he talks about him in such a, it's really 
funny. But his name was Cyril Jode. Have you heard of Cyril Jode? No, but he sounds like a baddie. Well, he was a regular panellist on this wartime radio discussion programme called The Brains Trust. You can imagine, can't you, the men that are on that discussing the issues of the day. He was an author, philosopher, and John Grimrod describes him as a sort of gobbier J.B. Priestley, which I quite like. And he, I mean, he believed in what he called the inferior mind of women. He was okay. kicked out of the Fabian Society for sexual misbehaviour. He briefly became director of propaganda for Oswald Mosley's fascist new party. I think basically okay. if he were around today, he'd be mouthing off on GB News. That's who he is. Let's, let's, say, let's say he's not a friend of the podcast. <laughs> not a friend of the podcast, I don't think. Oh, Cyril Jones. And um, he said of... Townspeople having access to the countryside. Well, actually, I'll let you read what he wrote, John, because I think you can do a snobby voice better than I can. I know you can. I'll tell you. <laughs> I would have every child required to pass an examination in country law and country manners before he left school. There is something to be said for requiring every townsman who has not succeeded in passing this examination to wear an L upon his back when he walked abroad in the country. For until he learned the elementary manners of the countryside, he is no better qualified to be at large in a wood than a learning motorist to be at large on a road. Wow. That, you, you read that way too well, John. <laughs> I sort of got into it. I sort of started to agree as yeah, I was halfway I can through. See you're like, oh, this is the boy from Maidenhead yeah. I was supposed to be. Oh, dear. <laughs> wow. I saw a sliding doors moment there, John, a moment where you hadn't been an activist in your youth this is the way you could have gone yes poor people wearing a big letter l on them when they walk in the woods <laughs> absolutely <laughs> well this Cyril jode he even wrote a book that was called the untutored townsman's invasion of the country fantastic we've got to read that so one. i think we can see where he stood on all of this and these yeah. sorts of people they thought these proposals and and this potential influx of town dwellers into their precious countryside as a kind of town versus country civil war, uh, completely ignoring the fact that there are plenty of, you know, uh, sort of poor rural dwellers as well. But anyway, Absolutely. and the, the worst people in their eyes, John, the worst of the lot were dun, 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 the Ramblers. Oh, now, yes. we know a podcast about what happened with the Ramblers, don't we, John, when they clashed with the countryside gentry? Yeah, we did. We did a whole podcast about the Kinder Scout Mass Trespass. I sang a little bit of I'm a Rambler by Ewan McCall. Oh, you did. And I did yes. a funny I, joke I about rambling. Out. Funny joke about rambling where I talked a lot and changed the subject. And then you went, oh, I see the Rambling Society. So do go back and listen just for that joke. It's definitely worth just it. Just for that joke. <laughs> Don't put yourself through it, people. But, <laughs> so because as far as these kind of country folk were concerned, Walking was something necessary for country people. They were stewarding their grounds. It was an operation. It was part of their working life. And here were these people coming in and doing it for fun. <laughs> so they were really anti the Ramblers. So I suppose this idea of the green belt can be seen in two distinct ways. It can be seen as protecting the countryside from urban sprawl and providing this sort of barrier of protection for a country way of life. Or it can be seen with its original intent, its very original intent with amongst those social reformers of providing access to the countryside for urban dwellers. And while the principles of the early proponents of the idea were for the latter, there starts to be this shift towards the former being the predominant reason for Greenbelt policy to protect the countryside from urban sprawl. There were, however, people involved in the evolution of Greenbelt policy that seemed to have the interests of the countryside and the urban poor at heart. Can you imagine such a thing? After this break, we'll meet one of them. Hello and welcome back to We Are History, where we are talking about the history, is what Angela's written in the notes. We're talking about the history of the... She's a bit of a cockney now. Working oh, class blimey. from the South, John. I dropped my H's. You should know she's that. She's actually done it in the notes. We're talking about the history of the green belt, in it. <laughs> yes, we are, John. Talking about the history of the green belt. So, 
in the 1930s, we know Britain had its first Greenbelt legislation. But then something happened, John, in 1939 that would change everything. Ah, yes, I know this. The invention of nylon stockings. That's right. John. No, not really, John. Um, World War Two. Oh. So, it, it, yeah, that little thing. Remember that? No, oh, not, not, I don't not, know about that. No, of course not. No. Uh, let me remind you. So in terms of the Greenbelt, World War Two changed how we used land and the countryside in this country because the war effort meant that people of different classes and different genders all found themselves in places they would never have been and doing things they would never have done in peacetime. So you had these parks and open spaces that were dug up for farming and allotments, including acres of the London County Council's new green belt that had been designated earlier in the 30s. And so there were farmers that had been pushed from their land by green belt legislation were now being asked to stay on it and keep farming it for the war effort to feed the nation. Yes, and city kids were evacuated to the countryside and land girls were sent to work on farms and suddenly people were getting access to the countryside in a whole new way. That's right. And meanwhile, by 1944, plans were starting to be made for the rebuilding of London after the war. So London obviously being a city that had borne the brunt of bombings and was forever changed by it, as well as other cities had their own plans going on. But this is where Patrick Abercrombie comes in. He was a man tasked with getting together a band of researchers for what would become known as the Greater London Plan of 1944, a really important piece of of work that he did. And we talked about it in our Council House episodes. And if you're a post-war housing and architecture nerd like I am, you already know all about who Patrick Abercrombie is. It won't be a name that's a surprise to anyone who's into that stuff. So in 1926, he was the chair of the Council for the Preservation of Rural England. He was a renowned town planner and architect and professor of civic design at the University of Liverpool School of Architecture. And he was passionate, wasn't he, about both the countryside and the town? I think that's what's important about him. He was, you know, really... um instrumental in the preservation of rural England. He was instrumental in the development of the country code and things like that. But he also was a realist and he knew that there was a need for housing and he knew there was a need for the rebuilding of urban centres after World War II. So he was really looking at, right, how can we look at the needs of town and country together? So he and these researchers, while the war's still going on, they begin to make plans for what will happen when it's over. And their research methods are pretty rudimentary. It's quite interesting to read about them. So to find out where the edge of London was, obviously during wartime, you couldn't just get in a plane and start flying around or, you know, that would be expensive and irresponsible. So they would just have to get in a car and drive down streets until the houses ran out and then sort of make a mark on a map where the houses stopped and the countryside started. And they just drove all around the edge of London doing that to make their map. I still think that every time I drive along the uh, M4 flyover out of Brentford or wherever it is, and suddenly you just hit green space and you just hit Gunnersbury or wherever it is. And there's there's Mm. playing fields and parks and forests and the canal. And it's like very sudden that you hit that uh, greenness as you come out of London. Whereas places like Tokyo and Mexico City, they're literally the size of the southeast of England, the cities there. So it's incredible, you know, the difference it can make. But anyway, this guy's plans included a green belt that would have hoover up all the bits of existing metropolitan green belt and make a continuous five mile wide loop around London. Yeah. And in fact, the Greater London Plan, as John Grinrod puts it in his book, was all about belts. He came up with this idea of these sort of concentric circles of belts. So you had the inner London belt, a suburban belt, a five mile wide green belt, and beyond that, a country belt, 10 miles deep, into which you could place these new towns that were part of his plans, like Harlow and Stevenage, where they would be slotted in. Yeah, in Abercrombie's words, the purpose of the Green Belt was to separate the threatened countryside from the threatening town. Yeah. And the plan wasn't sexy, John. In fact, compared to today, you know, when any sort of planning proposal starts using words like vision and vibrant communities and it's all, you know, making it look... Again, John Grindrod in his book describes Abercrombie's plan as reassuringly boring. It just consists <laughs> of loads of fold-out maps and diagrams. And that's sort of what you want, isn't it? There's no bells and whistles. It was just yep. this 
is the plan that yeah. is going to work. It was pretty light at the time on how it was actually be implemented. But then that's hardly surprising because when it was written, the country was on a war footing. The economy was centralised. You know, the local authorities had no control over anything. So there was no real plans for implementation, but that's quite understandable considering yeah. when it was written. Yeah, those plans, they always, they always show a, a mother pushing a sort of push chair or something, don't they? They never show a drunk lying on a bench or, no, or exactly. two blokes puking up behind the bins. <laughs> they always leave those bits out of the artist's impression. Funny that, isn't it? Anyway, spoiler alert, the war did end, of course, in 1945, and Abercrombie's plans could start to be put into action. Of course, as is always the case, the weakness of the UK economy from the end of the 40s until the 70s meant that there was never really sufficient resources available for planning on the scale that Abercrombie had envisaged. No, always the case is that we see yeah. that with again in the fall and rise of the council house. Yeah. These great ideals are brilliant, but people won't pay for them. And then shortcuts are made and the, the plans Cheap are houses. never fully realised. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But an important outcome of his plans was through, now bear with me, John, because this is going to sound boring, but I think it's interesting. <laughs> was through the Town and Country Planning Act of 1947. And this was a game changer for the Greenbelt because it basically introduced the concept of planning permission. Seems incredibly late to me. I mean, incredible. Yeah, um, it does, the, the, isn't it? The Act was passed by Atlee's Labour government and came into effect in 1948. And it meant that ownership alone no longer gave you the right to develop land. Local authorities were given powers of approval for any planning proposals. That's right. There was some earlier legislation, I think in 19... 19- either 1909 or 1919, something like that, which meant that local authorities had some say over land use. Right. Because up to that point, it was a free-for-all. If you owned the land, you could sell people to do whatever they liked on it, build houses, build industry, whatever. There was no sort of way that anyone could challenge that. Um, But this was the first time that it became really enshrined in law. And it meant that local authorities no longer had to acquire land in order to preserve it for designated greenbelt. They could just refuse permission for development on it. So it's a sort of consent of a community for development, a sort of nationalisation of the right to develop land. And it was really in keeping, I suppose, with the other radical policies of that Atlee government, the nationalised coal, steel, railways, and, you know, setting up universal health and social welfare. It's all part of that same... They were busy, weren't they? Yeah. They were busy, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yes. I mean, incredible, really. They've got this weird thing in New York where you can buy the land above someone else's land. So if there's a skyscraper opposite you, uh, they can only go up to like a thousand feet and you can say, yeah, I've bought the space above your skyscraper, so you can't build upwards on that, which is fairly bizarre. That's not buying land, is it? That's (laughs) literally buying air. Air, I know, but it's sort of, that's their way of managing the planning. Of course, anyway, back to to the 40s, not everyone was happy about this. The right to enjoy one's property was deeply embedded in the British psyche. Uh, an Englishman's home is his castle and all that bollocks. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you can imagine there were yeah. landowners not too happy How about being told they? what they could or could not have built on the land they sold. Yeah. But this act was what really helped to solidify the Greenbelt concept because it meant all these councils that might not have been able to afford to acquire the land needed to maintain the Greenbelt were having to get loans and whatever. It yeah. really freed up money for them to, you know, for other services of the welfare state. And it meant they weren't spending money on Greenbelt land. Um, They could just refuse planning permission. However, the process of implementation of Greenbelts was slow. A bit like you in a karate class, John. It took a long time to get a Greenbelt. Oh, the the, the chokes keep coming. (laughs) I know, right? I I love it when you're unwell. It's just like, oh, what could be my target? Oh, just John. I just, I just Just like, I'm tired. I I just just take the piss out of John. John. Sorry, John. You're really getting a beating in this episode, aren't (laughs) you? I do apologise. Any attention at my age? Any attention? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, just another thing. I was saying about my grandfather building all those houses in the in the thirties and forties. He had, uh, my mum told a story about the council compulsorily purchasing some land that he had. And uh, the the price that they said was so low, they said, if you're going to steal it, just steal it. And he took no money for it at all. So there was a lot of tension between landowners and 
council authorities. And my mum, grown up, was like, well, good luck to the Labour Council. But uh, on the, at the time, you know, she was thinking her dad was being robbed. But uh, So there was a, a lot yeah. of tension there. In 1955, uh, there was a Conservative government again. And six months into his new job, the Minister for Housing, old Etonian Duncan Sands MP, made a surprise statement in the Commons. He said... I am convinced that for the well-being of our people and for the preservation of the countryside, we have a clear duty to do all we can to prevent further unrestricted sprawl of the great cities. And he praised the home counties for their metropolitan greenbelt and urged other county councils that were attempting the same to submit their proposals for clearly defined greenbelts. Yes, and four months after this statement, a letter from his department went round all the county and borough councils in England and Wales explaining his desire for all counties to consider green belts. So this was a real enforcement of green belt policy now. Yes, and implementing the green belt policy isn't really what Duncan Sands ended up being most famous for, though, is it? No, I mean, he did several things. He he introduced the Clean Air Act. He uh, ended national service. But I think he's more famous for his penis, John. Did you know oh, about this story? <laughs> no, I think you mentioned so, it to me once before. But yes, another sort of belt was undone, wasn't it? <laughs> it, it was indeed. This is definitely about other. So in 1963, Duncan Sands was accused of being the recipient of a sexual act given by the Duchess of Argyle. So she was going through quite ugly divorce proceedings at the time. And this Polaroid surfaces where she's... I'm going to just say it, John. She's blowing a man at an orgy while another man is masturbating in the background. And apparently, so what Duncan Sands had to do, he went to his doctor to sort of get confirmation comparing his penis with that in the photo. And that confirmation got him out of trouble. But I've got a theory, John, like, what if his doctor was the other man in the photo? They're, they're all at it. They're all at it, those yeah. posh people. Anyway. They're orgies. I mean, you can hear about, know, the 19- right? hear about the 1960s and sex scandals in our Profumo episode. Absolutely. The idea that these people have any sort of control over the moral guardianship of the country is so laughable. But anyway, yeah. we digress. So the Greenbelt's purpose was made clear when Sam's successor came in, Henry Brooke, the new housing minister, (laughs) and he said this, he said the very essence of a green belt is that it is a stopper. It may not all be very beautiful and it may not all be very green, but without it, a town would never stop. So this is the real flip from what those original social reformers wanted the green belt to be. This is now just about stopping the encroachment into the countryside of the city and nothing to do with, you know, poor people getting access to countryside. And people are divided on whether this was ultimately a good thing or a bad thing. The downside of the actual implementation of the green belts is that original key purpose, that of public access and enjoyment of the countryside, really did seem to sort of fall away, didn't it? It became all about protecting land from development. Yeah. And of course, those protected rural hinterlands were often wealthy, often conservative voting heartland. Yeah. Between 1947 and the mid 80s, the green belt around London expanded significantly. And there's no doubt that the the policy was popular. Yeah. And also there were attitudes by this time towards the perceived failings of those early new towns, your Stevenages and your uh, Harlows and places like that, and these overspill estates. And we talked about this in our council housing episode um that that people really turned against building more new towns and against urbanization in general because like we said you know the original plans for them were never realized because funding gets cut and then shortcuts get made and then you end up with these troublesome estates and so on the whole the nation had this feeling of urbanization bad green belts good yeah and while the green belt was effective in containing sprawl, there were issues. For example, residential areas were becoming separated from areas of work, and that made people more reliant on private cars. In fact, the M25 was built in response to this very problem in 1986. Exactly. And then, of course, it, oh, my voice really broke then. Did you hear yeah. that, John? I'm oh, going you're just, full. You're, you're definitely hitting puberty now. Um, yeah. I'm turning into a man. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, in the 90s, we start to have conversations about environmental impact when it comes to planning. And this begins to influence policy more and more. And by 1997, John, I don't know if you're aware of this, but we had a Labour government again. Oh, I didn't know about that. No, it's very interesting. Um, In 1998, an urban task force was headed by Richard Rogers. 
Do you know who that is? Richard Rogers. He was the architect responsible for the Lloyds building, that sort of inside out looking building in London and the Pompidou Centre. Oh, and the Millennium Dome. Yes, I've got to digress here to describe the spitting image puppet of Richard Rogers because it was oh, a sketch really? where the, he was talking close up on his head about the concept of having all the pipes and the um, service uh, ducts on the outside of the building. They widened and he had his pancreas and his heart and his lungs all on the outside <laughs> of his body. It must be the most expensive puppet and the most highbrow joke they ever did in all those years of spitting Lovely. image. But uh, I got it. I remember thinking that was hilarious. It was long before I was writing for the programme. Lovely. Anyway, this task force report went back to the roots of the Greenbelt idea again, reiterating the importance of public space, walking, cycling and public transport, as well as uh, mixed use development, of course. Yeah, labour, see. Now, look, yeah. I don't know how clear it is to see these different approaches for the implementation of a green belt in terms of party politics, because it's easy to say, oh, the Tories were all about preser- preserving the countryside and labour all about, you know, the experience of urban dwellers and the urban poor because after all i'm pretty sure there's plenty of conservative voters who would have gained from more development opportunities on greenbelt land yeah. so you know they wouldn't all have been pro protection from urban sport but there does seem to be you know with these different governments these very different approaches come to the fore yes indeed well you know which way my bread's buttered angela uh, by 1995 there were one and a half million acres of greenbelt in england covering almost 12 percent of the country which is pretty amazing yeah and the debate about what to do about green belt land still goes on, of course. Um, oh. Theresa May proposed building houses on green belt land, as has Jacob Rees-Mogg. But of course, their ideas for development are very much based around nuclear family and home ownership. Yes, not for social um, housing, of course. No, funnily enough, housing the urban poor still doesn't seem to be top of the Tory to-do list. And and a little quick mention of something I haven't put in my notes, but brownfield sites has been in conversation a lot, which are sort of old industrial sites or old derelict urban sites that are ripe yeah. for development now. So, you know, there's still loads of conversations going on about where potentially the housing crisis could be addressed, but yes. nothing seems to really happen. It's just, I've just got a feeling maybe after the next election, they might finally wake up to one of the desperate sort of issues of our modern yeah. age, really. Um, but that's very interesting, Angela. Thank you for guiding me through the green belt and your wonderful joke about me getting a green belt in judo. That was a highlight for me. <laughs> Karate, actually, John. Karate, but, you know. that's right, yes. Um, <laughs> and all done under the um, burden of a, a terrible illness that has... It's laid you low in Brighton, so well done. I'm, I'm, got... I'm burning up, but, you know, we're getting yeah, through it. It's we're fine. getting through it. We want to thank our brilliant Patreon supporters. We'll do some shout-outs, shall we, John? Shall I yes, start for our Patreon shout-outs today? So we want to say hello and thank you to Rosie Simpson. Uh, Dave Summers. John K. Billsbury. Nicola Imry. And David Rayner. Thank you very much, people. So to find out how to support the podcast, get yourself some exclusive benefits, some merch, early episodes, ad-free episodes, click on the link in the show notes. Excellent. Patreon.com slash We Are History. Oh, my goodness me. I've done it. I've got to the end of the episode. Fantastic work. <sighs> Thank you for listening, everyone. Give us five stars. Oh, yes. Please do that on Apple Pods. That really helps get us up the old charts. It helps the old algorithm. And at our age, we need our algorithm servicing. Thank Me you. Too. We'll My catch you next algorithm. week on We Are History. <laughs> Bye. Bye. We Are History is written and presented by Angela Barnes and John O'Farrell, with audio production by me, Simon Williams. The lead producer is Anne-Marie Luff, and the group editor is Andrew Harrison, with artwork by James Parrott. We Are History is a Podmasters production. <laughs>